I'm James Gould, and this is The Recess Course. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about chest trauma. Specifically, we're going to focus on strategies for thoracostomy, chest decompression, and chest tubes. And we're lucky today to have Dr. Daniel French here with us. Danny is an assistant professor in the Department of Surgery, and he's a thoracic surgeon here at Dalhousie University. He is a trauma team leader and trauma consultant. So he has a wealth of experience in this area, and we're lucky to have him here. Thanks for, thanks for being here, Danny. Well, thank you for having me. All right, so we're going to start with a case, as we always do, and we'll just sort of frame how sick this patient is and, and kind of allow the, the audience to understand who we're talking about when we're answering these questions. So, Danny, you have a 41-year-old male. He's an unrestrained passenger ejected during an MVC at highway speeds. His GCS is 12, his heart rate's 130, with a blood pressure of 80 on 70. His stats are 85%. He's on a non-rebreather currently and breathing at his own rate of 20 breaths per minute. He has some signs of head, chest, and abdominal injuries. And in the field, his pelvis was bound, a C-collar was put in place, and the medics established a 16-gauge IV in his left AC. The patient now arrives to you, and the primary survey reveals some chest wall trauma on the left side with decreased chest rise. So, you know, without getting into specific details about how you might go about decompressing this patient's chest, because I think, you know, everything, all the information we have so far and the information on the primary survey and based on his SATs and his blood pressure, I think everyone would agree that this patient does need his chest decompressed. My question for you is how you sequence that in your resuscitation and how you sequence it in terms of when is that going to happen? How do you prioritize it versus all the other things that need to happen for this patient, like blood products and intubation? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, this is a challenging, can be a challenging situation. And I think ideally, we usually have a number of members on the trauma team. And in fact, we can be doing some of these things concurrent. I think your most bang for your buck in this situation is going to be to prioritize decompressing the chest, as that may help you out with the blood pressure. The other confounding factor you have here, and as you know, you don't want any any hypotension in a patient with potential head injury. So I'm conscious of that. And so I'd be working quickly to get the chest decompressed. So in this particular situation, I would I would be moving quickly to decompress the chest with the, with the hope that that's going to bring the blood pressure up. And if it doesn't, I'd be chasing that with some blood product quite quickly. Even if they've got you know a lower GCS and they don't imminently need an airway secured, I move on to decompressing the chest and probably backtrack to get the intubation done afterwards. I think it's going to be a priority in this situation. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. We always talk about this idea of resuscitating patients before we intubate them and totally agree this patient needs an airway, but that might be the sort of the jaw thrust or, you know, helping support a patent airway and then moving on to doing the decompression to get the blood pressure up so then you can safely intubate them. So that makes a lot of sense to me to prioritize the chest decompression early in this patient's resuscitation. So Danny, I read a paper recently that talked about the hemodynamic effect of pneumothoraces. It was sort of centered around tension pneumothorax. And it talked about what the differences are in hemodynamics with someone that was spontaneously breathing versus someone that had positive pressure ventilation. Uh, putting hypoxia aside, because you know essentially both of these can become significantly hypoxic, the paper suggested that patients that were breathing on their own were able to generate enough negative intrathoracic pressure to offset some of that hemodynamic consequence, and that perhaps if you saw someone who came in with a significant signs of chest injury and potential pneumothorax, that their hypotension, if they did have it, is unlikely to be due solely to that 
that pneumothorax versus if you had someone that came in and was being bagged by EMS or they had already had an airway established and they're being ventilated through the endotracheal tube, that that person is much more likely to generate decreased venous return to the right heart and thus generate a decreased MAP. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, that's a good question. The, the number of times we see tension pneumothoraces and the exact mechanism is probably a little bit unclear. And some of it depends on what the patient's preload or volume status is as well. So as you can appreciate, if someone is volume deplete, it doesn't take much pressure or positive endothoracic pressure before you're going to lo- lose your preload in the IVC and the SVC. So if you do have a patient that's volume deplete, the effect of air in the or the positive pressure in the inner thoracic space is going to have a bigger impact. To go back to your question, can you go under tension under spontaneous breathing, or is it more likely on a ventilator or when you're at some other form of positive pressure? I think that you can certainly go under tension with a, a spontaneous ventilation when you simply de- develop a, a one-way valve between your lung parenchyma and the pleural space. And that certainly can happen. And once the air builds up in there, it's it's hard to, to drop it. So I, I think you probably, if you have a tension pneumothorax, it could be made worse by positive pressure. But I think if you have a patient that, that is spontaneously breathing, you still have to be conscious and concerned about a tension pneumothorax. Trauma patients are usually not well hydrated. You're assuming the volume deplete. And, and your impact is going to be, be more exacerbated. You need to reverse what you can reverse. And so if, you, if you're concerned with pneumothoraces, I have a very low threshold for getting the chest space drained. And if, and if you drain one side and you don't get the response and you suspect a pneumothorax on the other side, I drain that as well. So, you know, we've been in traumas where, you know, they quickly get bilateral chest tubes. And in any, many situations, that can be life-saving. I think in the, not the patient that's clinically well, that's when you can spend a little more time determining whether or not you need to drain them and and what their clinical course might be. Yeah, that's a great point. Or they're bleeding and their volume deplete as a as a consequence of that as well. So just exacerbating the the effect of the of the venous decreased venous return. I guess and and all I guess it really doesn't change how you're going to manage the patient regardless because it, whether or not the hemodynamics are going to be as affected with positive pressure ventilation their saturation should be and if they have signs of chest trauma with significant hypoxemia decreased chest rise signs of of pneumothorax on that side chances are that patient's getting their chest decompressed regardless so that's how we prioritize doing de- chest decompression I'm curious about how you decompress your chest. So let's say you've decided to, to go ahead with it and you have a few choices. So, you know, needle decompression or sort of putting your finger in, putting in a chest tube. Or what's your approach to that, Danny? Yeah, and I'm a, a bit biased on that because, you know, I, we place a lot of chest tubes for various reasons. In trauma, I think you want to be as quick as possible, the most efficiently. For me, that's going to be an open chest tube. It's just, I can get it in quickly. It doesn't require a lot of equipment. You need a, a bit of local, some prep a knife and a Kelly in a tube. And it's often a good tube, even if you've got a lot, lot of subcutaneous emphysema or an obese patient. So that's the tube I will usually go to. If you've got a patient that's stable and you're draining a pneumothorax because your SATs are in the high 80s and you've picked this up after CAT scans or x-rays, my preference would be a, a technique with a 14 French pigtail catheter. The reason being is that's a much more comfortable tube but it will usually take a little bit more time to place. And you do have to be a bit more specific, you know, if, particularly if there's any concern for the patient having adhesions, you may need to be patient placing it laterally. And so it's nice to have an image before you go and try to land a pigtail catheter. No, that said, if you're in a situation where you've all you've got is needle decompression, 
that's a, a good start. And if you if you anticipate that it's going to take you five or 10 minutes to get a chest tube in, I would start with the needle decompression. That will give you your five to 10 minutes to go on and place that large pore chest tube. And that's what I would do. If you're in a situation where you don't have a needle or, or the patient's too thick to place a needle, which is not an uncommon problem, and you think it's going to take you a while to get a chest tube in place, then a finger thoracoscopy would be a reasonable option. But I, the finger thoracoscopy, which I've certainly is becoming more common, the challenge with that is at some point you do need to place a chest tube and you're now increasing the risk of introducing infection between your finger that's been inserted and then the time it takes to reprep and drape and put a tube in and, and that can lead to empyema, particularly if there's a, a hemothorax component. So although that is becoming more common in the literature as a thoracic surgeon, I, I would kind of shy away from that unless you're kind of desperate and would favor if you've gone through the steps of, of entering the chest bluntly to follow that with a chest tube afterward. Yeah, I think that's a great answer. Yeah, I feel like context is so important with this one, what, like where you're working, regional center versus if you're in our trauma bay, those are two different, very different scenarios. So in our setting, I think you'd agree there's, there's usually a handful of people in the room that have the ability to put in chest tubes as long as they're ready to put those chest tubes into the patient that, was, that they knew was coming in sick. It's not going to take much longer to put the chest tube in than it would be to do the finger thoracostomy. And you probably have enough resources that you can dedicate that person to doing the finger thoracostomy and then just continuing with the chest tube. I think the the finger thoracostomy and then delay to chest tube, that's probably would be more common in a setting like in a regional center where someone had to do the finger thoracostomy to decompress the chest. And then they were, had to move on to do other things themselves because they don't have all those other people there to help them out. and that just might be one of those scenarios where, like you say, if you're stuck, that's what you have to do. And then you make sure you maintain sterility as much as you can and then go back and put the chest tube in afterwards. There certainly are a lot of differences, both based on the center. You know, you got to appreciate that in some of these traumas are being run by the only eMERGE doc in the hospital who's doing both the primary survey, the trauma team leader role, and all the procedures. And that's Certainly different than where there's a larger trauma team where several people have the skill set for placing tubes, while others can be dedicated to managing the overall trauma or, or intubating or other aspects of it. So I think some of it depends on your what your resources are and your skill set. I think if you're in a regional center or in a, in a smaller center, having a way to rapidly decompress the chest with either the needle or a finger and then the ability to place a larger tube is probably going to allow you to stabilize the patient enough to ultimately allow for transport and definitive management. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Just so that we touch on the technical aspects of this, there has been some change in where you would place the needle for decompression. Can you briefly touch on that for, for the listeners that ha- would have this as their primary modality? Yeah, no, that's a, that's an interesting question. And it, it's actually something that I think a lot of us that have placed a lot of tubes have arrived at in the past. So if, if, as you recall, historically, a needle decompression is done at the mid-axillary line in the second intercostal space. And a chest tube is placed somewhere between the anterior mid-axillary line in the fourth intercostal space. The easier way to look at that and the way I often teach it is if you're placing a chest tube, as long as you're above the nipple and lateral, you should be fine and go where this patient's thinnest. Where they're thinnest happens to be at the lateral border of the pectoralis major muscle, which happens to be between the mid and anterior axillary line. The chest wall can be quite thick for a number of reasons at the second intercostal space and landmarking that can be difficult. And so I think quite reasonably, the technique has changed to placing the needle between the anterior or mid-axillary line where things do tend to be the thinnest. That said, that area still can be several inches thick on, a, on an obese patient, but it does tend to be the thinnest area. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have on the recesscourse.com, I'll put a link to it in the show notes for this podcast, but we do have a video on the finger thoracostomy and landmarking for that, which for the purposes of the needle decompression, as you described, would be a, would be a similar location. Well, all roads lead to a chest tube eventually. What's your approach to sizing of these tubes? Because I think that's changed a little bit over time as well. What If you were going to put in an open chest tube, what size French tube are you going to use? So the, I think if, if you're using an open tube, if it's, if it's for just air, smaller is better. They're more comfortable. The, the intercostal space is not a big space in most humans. And even in obese patient, their thorax may be still quite small. And so a, the bigger the tube, the more it's going to push on the intercostal nerve and the more it's going to hurt. So for evacuation of air, you're generally fine with a small tube. And so if it's the smallest tube you can get open is usually a 20 French, but my actually go-to tube for a pneumothorax in a stable patient would be a 14 French pigtail catheter. You can secure them the skin pretty well. They evacuate enough air. You can actually ultimately inject things through them. If you've got a hemothorax component, if you're going to try to avoid going to the operating room, so have the hemothorax drain out through the tube, bigger is going to be better. The I would usually go 28 and up. I'm On a bigger patient, I may go to 32. And the reason is that blood clots quite quickly on plastic. So if you have a hemothorax and you if you put a, a smaller tube in, it'll often clot off. And we can sometimes salvage that with fl- with flushes. But if you are trying to evacuate a reasonable size hemothorax, I would go with a bigger tube. If it doesn't work, we can we can evacuate that vats. But it's nice to save them a surgery. Yeah, and this sounds like the type of patient where you know we've done the primary survey, they're stable, they've gone over to scan, they've come back, and we've identified you know their their pneumo or their hemonumo. For the patient that comes in and you're decompressing the chest followed by a chest tube, but you're not quite sure what's going on yet, what size tube would you pick there? I'd probably go 28 most of the time because that's going to allow you to get blood out if you need it. So that would be probably a reasonable size favor going bigger than smaller. Acknowledging that's going to cause a little bit more pain. But if you're fairly confident you're just dealing with a pneumo, smaller would be better. Gotcha. Danny, we did a journal club the other day, and basically we looked at the 28 French chest tube versus a 14 French pigtail catheter for small-sized hemothoraces and stable traumatic patients. I'm curious your thoughts on that, because I know that your opinion sounds like it would be larger is better for hemothorax, and this newer study would suggest that perhaps in a certain subset of hemothorax from trauma that we might be able to manage it with that 14 French pigtail. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, no, it's intriguing. I, I must admit, I, I do tend for hemothorax to go bigger, as, as I was saying. I think if you've got a stable patient with a small hemothorax and the ability to give TPA, so you're in a center that you're going to have the comfort level of administering TPA through the pleura, that you could go with the smaller tube. Now, the problem with the smaller tube are, is with the cylinder technique, you really need some form of radiographic guidance, which usually comes in the form of ultrasound. So in the, in the trauma bay, in the acute setting, and you've got a patient that's crashing, I don't think that that's the time to start scanning their chest, looking for the biggest pocket, and then diligently putting your tube in. I think if you've got a stable patient with a small hemothorax and you're trying to evacuate it, that going with the smaller tube, especially with you know with this data, and, and you, as you as you elicited, this has been a controversial issue over time. 
that you certainly could try the smaller pigtail, but I do anticipate that you may need to use some form of thrombolysis to help break up the clot, which is something we commonly do. But to do that, you need to be in a center that's comfortable with administering that and have the capabilities of dealing with bleeding that may occur as a result of it. So I'm certainly not opposed to it. I do use a 14 14 French pigtail catheter for almost everything. And I, I would have confidence that they potentially could work for hemothorax, but I think that needs to be in a relatively controlled situation. So if you're in a situation where you're, you really need that blood out and you might be going to the OR for a thoracotomy or you might need that blood out just to be able to ventilate the patient, then I'd go with a larger tube. If you've got stability, I certainly wouldn't be critical of someone that tried a 14 French pigtail. The, the other issue with this is you can try one thing and if it doesn't work over a short interval of time, you could always upsize the tube as well. So I would certainly be supportive of, tr- of trying that on an, a stable, well-selected patient and even more supportive if you have the ability to give TPA. Yeah, that's a great point. Once these tubes are in, what's your method to secure them? Any advice to the listeners on on how to actually secure the tube in place so it doesn't come out? Yeah, when I was a fellow, I if the tubes fell out at night, I had to go back in and put the tubes back in the patients. Fast producer, we have twenty to thirty patients with various chest tubes, and if one fell out in the middle of the night, it was my job to go back in and, and reinsert it. So what I insisted on in that role and with that responsibility is that everybody have a minimum of an O suture. So O number one, but something heavy, not two O, not four O, O or bigger. And I liked a braided stitch. And the reason is the braided stitch will grip on the tube a little bit better. So my message would be the primarily make sure you've got an O or bigger. My preference is to use Ethabon or Silk, but proline if tied well and secured, that's fine. The other thing to appreciate is it's more difficult to secure a small tube than a bigger tube. So if you have a large a large bore tube, it's easier to secure than a small bore tube. Your knots don't have to be as, as square and as tight on the larger tube. But I, I would, so, but you do want that attention to detail. And if you don't think your first suture worked, just add another one if you are concerned. So if you you don't like the way it laid out, you, something, something happened, just add a second suture. You can always cut two at once. Otherwise, you'll be back putting the tube in. So long story short, O or bigger and ideally braided. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Afterwards, this is post chest tube care, but I think it's important for people because we don't, you know, as emergency providers are not often managing chest tubes. So first off, you're going to get a chest x-ray. And when are you happy when you look at the x-ray and when are you not so happy and say that something uh, something needs to be corrected yeah i don't look a lot at the tube placement like i, I think you need to appreciate it when you put these tubes in in the trauma bay particularly if the lungs collapse it's going to flop wherever you, where it goes so i i'm not so fussy about tube placement what i like to see is that the lung is close to re-expanding or certainly improving and i don't want to see a large hemothorax to see a large amount of fluid in there and i think one of the things in a trauma x-ray you have to appreciate especially if the patient's supine is that you may not see an air fluid level you just may see a haziness on one side of the chest more than the other. And that is almost always blood, uh, but you don't get the traditional air fluid level because they're still supplying. But really what it's all about is the pleural space is improving. So whatever fluid was in there, either air or liquid is being evacuated and that the tube is somewhere in the chest. But I, I don't fuss a lot about whether or not it's purely apical or down near the diaphragm, whether or not it's in the fissure, which is a common finding on the CT. So I, as long as it's functional, I'm, I'm usually happy. Nice. Yeah, that's good to know. All go to suction minus 20 or what are you hooking your chest tubes up to? Yeah, that's a good question. And and one that I think we have to answer a little carefully. So in trauma, I think it's a very reasonable assumption that the whatever liquid or fluids in the pleural space, air or blood has, has accumulated there rapidly. And so evacuating it rapidly is not necessarily a big problem. 
And for that reason, you, you could be quite comfortable with putting the chest tube on suction. And, and it, I'll, I'll loop back to one caveat for that. I just want to contrast that for the listeners that work in the emergency department, that if, if you're dealing with a chronic pleural effusion and someone comes in hypoxic, if you do drain that off too rapidly, they can get re-expansion pulmonary edema. And so I would be, I would not put a chest tube on suction immediately after draining a fusion that's chronic. And so what the secret in the way we run the trauma service here is we've just protocolized it so that after the chest tube is placed and x-ray is done, as long as there's no major adverse findings, we place the chest tube on suction for 24 hours and then try to take it off. And so I, I think initially after you place the tube, you'd be you'd be fine to do either. Placing it on suction has a small advantage that it may evacuate any, a little bit of the extra fluid or, or air, may give you some opposition between the chest wall and the lung, but it's not essential. I, I do want to give one caveat to that though, that, that is, it's, it's one of those can't be missed issues is if, if you put a chest tube in and the patient improves and you put them on suction and they decompensate, you likely have a tracheal bronchial injury. And what's happening there is the suction is actually sucking all of the air out of the airway through the through the main stem bronchus that's been injured. And, and so they can't even ventilate the contralateral lung, not much less the lung that's in there. So if you have a massive air leak and they get worse with suction, you need to take that off suction. You do not need to clamp the tube because then they're going to get a pneumothorax. You need to take it off suction and then you need to be calling thoracic surgery rapidly where we would proceed with a bronchoscopy and then lung isolation and then go to the operating room to repair the bronchus. Now, fortunately, tracheal bronchial injuries are relatively rare, but if you do have that scenario, you want to get them off the suction and you do need to be quickly involving thoracic surgery. That's going to be an emergency and one of the few situations where you can make the patient worse by having them on suction after the chest tube is placed. Wow, that's a good one to know. So, and when you say decompensate, what's the early sign you're going to see? Is that they start to get more hypoxic or requiring more oxygen? Oh, yeah. It, it'll be profound. Like you, so, so say, you know, just say they come in like our patient described here, SATs of 80, 85, and you put the chest tube in and, and they SATs go up to, you know, 90 or 100 or something like that. And then you get around to putting it on suction and they drop into the 70s and the patient's complaining of respiratory distress. That You've got a tracheal bronchial injury there. And that's a proximal airway injury. Ah, that's great to know. That's a big pearl. Down the road, you know, we'll talk mostly about the acute resuscitative management of these patients, but I am curious, when you're managing these patients 24 hours later, when do you decide it's time to take the tube out? Yeah, that's a, um, a good question. The, the, main, the short answer is when they don't need it anymore. And then the, the criteria for that, though, will vary. So there's two criteria to look at. One is if they're air leaking, two is how much is draining. So if you have an air leak, and, and this is something that I, I think is often missing outside the thoracic world, is that when they have a pleurovac connected, that if there's bubbles in the in the chamber where there's blue water, that means they have an ongoing air leak. So, so most of the time, if they have a persistent air leak, and that's going to be an alveolar pleural fistula, so there's a fistula between the alveolar and the pleural space, if you try to remove the tube, they're going to develop a recurrent pneumothorax and you're going to be putting it back in. So the way a lot of people get around that is they put a clamp on it. And if they get a pneumothorax afterwards, they, they figure there's still an air leak and they take the clamp off and leave it in longer. But there's a quicker step. If you just look, if there's bubbles, you can save your time from doing a, a clamp trial and an x-ray and just leave the chest tube in place. So you want to make sure that the air leak has resolved. Um, ideally, you want to make sure that the majority of the pneumothorax has. Sometimes it doesn't completely resolve and you can have a chest tube in for a long time unnecessarily. But I, I would say, so you remove the tube when the air leak resolves. And that would I would suggest clinical assessment of that. If you're unsure about your clinical assessment, 
So you're not sure if there's bubbles or not, or there's a discrepancy, the nurse saw an air leak, you didn't, or vice versa. You can try putting a clamp on the, on the chest tube and doing an x-ray somewhere between two and six hours later to see if the lung remains inflated. And if it does, you can probably safely remove the tube. The second issue to consider is, is the volume. So if they have a retained hemothorax, if you've done an x-ray and it's almost all completely evacuated, that, that should be fine. The, with significant chest wall trauma or diaphragm trauma, they will often continue to drain a fair bit of lymphatic or essentially a reactive effusion. The general number for that is varied, but if you went with 400, less than 400 cc's in 24 hours, you should be safe to remove it. That will vary a little bit based on the patient's weight, but ballpark 400 cc's, you should be safe. But if there is a retained hemothorax in there, I would, I would consider leaving it in to see if you can get it evacuated or if it also allows you a route to place some TPA if you need to try to break that up. But those are your two criteria: what, what the volume of what's of, of liquid that's coming out and whether or not they have a persistent air leak. Mm, that's awesome. All right, Danny, that's about all for the questions I had. Is there anything else that we missed or anything that you want to say last words to impart on the listeners? Thank you for having me, and I hope that was helpful. And uh, you know, I appreciate a lot of people place chest tubes, and it's it can at times be difficult, and but it certainly can be life saving. Awesome, thanks a lot.